Instagram is all about being cool. And the epitome of this is riding elephants, swimming with sharks, and posing with tigers. All of this makes for popular content. Travelers and influencers post perfectly curated images with captive wild animals for the likes. But travelers and the viewers that follow their adventures are often really unaware of what is happening behind the scenes. So today on Alpaca My Bags, we're going to learn about what these animals' lives are really like and how we can be responsible when participating in animal tourism. We're here today with Natasha Daly. Natasha is a journalist for National Geographic and has worked in the field around the world reporting on animal cruelty within the travel industry. In 2017, she was awarded Reporter of the Year by the Human Society of the United States for her animal welfare coverage. Welcome, Natasha. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. So I understand you've worked in animal welfare for some time. I'm curious about what point um, you began to research and experience or even just become aware of animal welfare issues within the travel industry specifically. Yeah, so I, I've, at National Geographic, I've been a writer there for four years and my beat is animal welfare and, and exploitation. Uh, so that is what I cover. Um, sadly, there are no shortage of, of uh, stories about animals being exploited around the world. So it's, um, it's a beat that I, I sort of continue to grow as I, as I continue to write, and I'm always finding new stories. And so just kind of through um, uh, the issues facing animals around the world, I, I did start to come across stories about animals being exploited in the travel industry. So it's something I was always aware of. Um, but it wasn't until, so I think two years ago, I actually got a, a source of mine uh, told me about a situation that was going on in the Amazon rainforest uh, where wild animals were actually being pulled out of the jungle and kept in captivity for tourists to come through and hold and interact with. Uh, so I actually went to report that story in the field. And the reason um, I did is because I had, I had heard a lot about um you know, elephant rides in Thailand and, and things that, that people seem to talk about a lot, like tiger petting. But this situation was very new to me, and it was in a part of the world that uh, it was surprising that, that these um, captive wildlife issues were, were going on. Uh, so that is kind of what got me down the path of looking at the connection between the travel industry and um, the exploitation of animals. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming you've always had a love for animals. Yes. Uh, yeah. Since I was a little kid, it's it's not something uh, reporting on animal welfare and exploitation isn't something I kind of set out to do. It's something I kind of fell into. Um, and I think it appealed to me so much because, um, A, I love animals. Uh, B, National Geographic is uh, very much has always been uh, focused on telling stories about the planet, the environment and animals. So it really was kind of a good fit for me to begin to explore these issues there. Um, and see, I mean, animals uh, don't have a voice, so they're not able to tell their own stories. So it's ultimately up to us um, to tell them for them. And so that's kind of what made me really want to kind of go down this road and, and continue to tell these stories. So you've traveled all over the globe to report on animal tourism, and we're going to link some of your coverage in the show notes for our listeners. But can you tell us about the most prominent and popular forms of animal tourism that you've witnessed around the world? You know, wildlife tourism really runs the gamut from, you know, taking binoculars out and bird watching in the forest or in your backyard um, or going whale watching on a boat to the kind of other end of the spectrum, which are these hands-on encounters with wild animals. And that is the stuff I really set out to look at because that is the area where you start to um, get issues with their treatment and their exploitation. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, we ultimately, um, I say we, uh, myself and photographer Kirsten Luce, we set out and we spent almost two years um, uh, reporting this story. Uh, we really kind of wanted to go to different hotspots around the world where these hands-on encounters are very popular with uh, tourists and travelers. Uh, and so we ended up going to the Amazon, we went to Thailand, we went to Hawaii, and we went to Russia, actually. 
So I was going to say, um, I know Asia is a hot spot. That's, I think, like for most Westerners, we're aware that that's the place you go if you want to interact with like tigers or elephants. But um, I had no clue that Russia was a hot spot for this. But it seems like, and from what I read in your piece, it seems like it's more of a domestic type of tourism. Yeah. It's more like traveling animals around the country. Exactly. And so I think it's important that um, to kind of note that wildlife tourism, it doesn't mean that um, you have to go to a far-flung exotic destination um, in order to engage with this stuff. There's, for example, right in the U.S., uh, you can hug and pet a tiger cub um, at many places all over the country. Uh, and so in Russia, I think what we were trying to do there was we wanted to explore another facet of this industry that um, was mostly geared towards Russians. Uh, so, for example, lots of we, we documented these traveling oceanariums, which are basically traveling circuses um, that put beluga whales and dolphins on trucks and bring them from city to city and set up these pop-up inflatable tents where they perform in a small pool. Uh, and the, the audiences there are, uh, you know, people, parents bringing kids from local towns where, where these uh, uh, performances are set up. So this was sort of an example of bringing the animals to the people as opposed to people going to see the animals as is usually the case in, you know, Thailand or other countries. Right, right. This might be a difficult country, uh, question, but what would you say was the most shocking thing that you encountered? I'm sure you went into this assignment knowing that you were going to see uncomfortable things, but was there anything that like really shocked you and you weren't prepared for? Yeah, uh, I did go in knowing that I would see things that would be upsetting, uh, um, distressing to me just as a person, because I knew this was going to be a very difficult topic to report on. And I think that, you know, we were, I was in Thailand for um, a month straight looking at, uh, looking at these things. And, and kind of as you go, I mean, every day you're exposed to animal suffering, uh, basically. And it, it's, it's something that um, you don't necessarily get used to it, but it becomes... I think uh, you become more conditioned to seeing it. Um, but I think it was actually uh, near the end of my time in Thailand that I witnessed uh, probably was what was the most shocking situation I had seen yet, uh, which was a young elephant that I found behind a performance stadium at a, um, at a facility outside of Bangkok. And uh, he had a bent, swollen leg and a gaping wound at his temple, and his eyes just wouldn't focus. Uh, and he was very, very skinny. And this was, uh, I think, until that point, um, by far the worst single situation I had witnessed um, with an elephant. And so that was something that really stopped me in my tracks. We, we ended up uh, putting him in our story. We reported his situation to authorities when we were actually on the ground. And after our story published, uh, we received an outpouring of concern from readers and social media users about him. And actually a couple weeks ago, he was purchased by a sanctuary in Thailand and he's now starting a new life there, which is incredible to see that kind of full circle. And the, the other shocking situation I would say um, was in Russia, actually. Uh, when we were in Russia, we found out that there was actually a polar bear circus. Uh, so there were performing polar bears in this show um, in a circus. And we had heard of, uh, you know, brown bears and circuses. Of course, they're all over Russia. But the idea of a polar bear in a circus was really shocking to me. They're the symbol of kind of conservation around the world. So uh, we actually flew to this town where the polar bears were performing and we watched the show and it was uh, pretty shocking. They were wearing metal muzzles and their trainers were holding um, metal rods and it was a circus on ice. So every time that a bear wasn't performing a trick, the bear would lie down and kind of rub its body in the ice. And so that was definitely, I think, a moment that kind of stopped me in my tracks and I realized that I mean, this is not something I ever expected um, to see. Wow. Two things come to mind based off of everything that you've just said. Um, first of all, I know, and we'll, we'll get into this a little further into the conversation, but I know that you focused a lot on the way that social media impacts animal tourism. So it's interesting to hear that social media also played a part in rescuing this this young elephant that you encountered in Thailand, that's it's such an interesting contrast, the ways that in which social media can do good, but it can also do such 
terrible things when it comes to exploitation of animals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you raise a great point. I mean, so I think the reason we initially wanted to do this story, you know, wildlife tourism had been reported on in, you know, small like bits and pieces before. Um, but we're I feel like there had never really been a comprehensive story on the scale of it around the world, um, and especially how social media impacts it. So it was 2018 when we set out to do the story, and the time felt right to really explore how social media has really set this whole industry ablaze. Um, and the reality is that, you know, you may have once heard about elephant riding, for example, um, looking through a guidebook while you're researching for a trip. But now, uh, you know, you can be sitting at home on your phone scrolling through Instagram just idly, and you might see a celebrity or an influencer or a friend um, posting a picture of themselves, you know, in this kind of dreamy landscape with an elephant. And you might think, wow, I want to do the same thing. And you may even plan a trip around it. So, so what these kind of the presence of these photos all over Instagram, especially, I would say, does is it almost creates this kind of viral advertising for these experiences, whether people intend it to be like that or not. Um, so yeah, I mean, social media is a massive kind of driver behind all of this, um, simply because it's putting these things out there in a way that they weren't out there before. Mm, absolutely. It's funny you bring that up because I remember once someone saying this to me and it seems so obvious because it, it is really obvious, but influencers on social media, literally what their job is, is to influence you, to make you want or need or pursue something through influence. Exactly. Um, and so sometimes you may have an influencer who has 150,000 followers who uh, went to an elephant experience in Thailand and maybe, you know, dressed in beautiful clothing, maybe using, uh, you know, beautiful filters on the photo. And uh, you might see that as someone who kind of, you know, envies or idolizes that person and think, wow, in order to have that experience, you know, this is a great place for me to go. Uh, but the reality is that so many of the places that influencers visit, um, because often they're paid to travel, and so a, a luxury hotel will say, um, you know, come, we'll give you a comp to stay, and um, in exchange, you can post about it on your feed. And often the case is that some of these places cost, you know, $1,000 a night, and the, mm. a person just looking at the feed may not be able to afford that. Uh, so what may happen, and this is kind of what I tended to see in my research, is that uh, in order to kind of emulate that experience, you might do a Google search for, say, Elephant Sanctuary, and come across a place that seems pretty affordable and seems pretty good, but that you actually get there. And in reality, uh, you know, they may not be treating their animals so well. Yeah. Um, so the piece we've been referencing a lot is called Suffering Unseen, and that was for National Geographic. Um, when I first read it, I think the first thing that shocked me was the images. Um, because they portray animals in a really visceral way being exploited for tourism purposes. Um, and I found it like really perplexing looking at these images because when I look at them, it's so obviously wrong. And it made me think, the people that are participating, how are they participating without... What do you think it is that people aren't understanding when they participate in these events that... Because it seems so obvious to me, and obviously to you as well, and I think a lot of viewers that looked at those images could clearly see it. And there's one particular image in the piece of this family on a beach in Thailand with the elephants that are posing, and I just mm -hmm. can't wrap my head around how people could participate and pay for that, and not yeah. it wouldn't register that it's wrong. So uh, do you have any insight as to why people people feel comfortable participating in this or what yeah. is driving them to want to partake in this exploitation? Yeah, you know, it's tough. I think, first of all, no one thinks they're participating in exploitation. Like that, the concept of them paying to contribute to, you know, perpetuating animal suffering is not something that I think enters anyone's mind. People generally love animals. They love them and they want to get close to them and, and no one wants to think they're helping to hurt them, um, I think, first of all. And so I think what really sort of goes into this, and I'm glad you brought up that photo of 
the family on the beach in Phuket, Thailand, um, sort of clamoring all over a young baby elephant. And that's a great example because uh, this was the beach that um, basically offered 20-minute photo shoots with young elephants. And I think they had five baby baby elephants there on the beach. And then people would kind of come down in groups and spend their time with the elephants, get their photos, and leave. Um, and I actually talked to a lot of people there at the beach. And many of them were Australians and uh, Brits and a, couple, a few Americans. And kind of asked them about the experience. And so many of them sent to me, you know, we're aware of the animal suffering that goes on in Thailand. You know, we would never go and watch an elephant show. And for, so an elephant show is basically, um, a, you know, a bunch of elephants bouncing basketballs, throwing darts, doing various tricks. Um, and so, the, so many people said to me, you know, we, we wouldn't go watch that show because we think that's abuse and it's not something we'd ever participate in. And then others would say, well, we'd also never ride an elephant because we've heard that, you know, that's that's wrong. But they, they would say, like, this experience seems different because it's a beautiful beach. Uh, the elephants seem to be enjoying it. Uh, they get in the salt water and we're all kind of having a great time. And to me, that's a really good sort of um, example of how it's so easy to kind of disconnect from the idea that you may be contributing to something that, that's harmful. Because in reality, um, the vast majority of elephants in Thailand, there are 3,800 elephants in captivity, and many of them are in the tourism industry. And in order to get close to a person like that, um, to safely interact and to have that sort of fun ex riding experience, um, that elephant has to be trained. And unfortunately, um, the vast majority of elephants, if not all in the tourism industry, are trained using fear-based or pain-based uh, methods. So um, whether you are watching a show or you're riding on an elephant's back or you're you know, frolicking with an elephant on a beach, the reality is that most of those elephants came from the same place and were trained in the same way. Um, and their lives, when you go home after 20 minutes and get your photos, may there's no way for you to see what their lives are like after you leave. And so it was really important for us in telling the story to kind of reveal what the average tourist can't see. Um, because the reality is that when you come and you have your experience and you leave, there isn't really anything to indicate that that animal may be suffering. Um, and so we, we really had to kind of go back at night. We had to talk to the owners. We had to really find out how these animals are trained in order to present a whole picture to the tourist. Um, and it was really important to us, I think, not to kind of shame people for having done this in the past, because I learned as I went how easy it is for people to really um, miss the big picture. Mm -hmm. And I can actually speak from my own experience. I traveled through Southeast Asia for several months and, of course, got sucked into the elephant tourism industry. Um, reflecting back on it now i don't think i made a terrible choice in the place that i chose it was a sanctuary um so at the sanctuary it was in cambodia we were allowed to feed them bananas and they were living in the jungles with their mahout so the mm -hmm. sanctuary had bought land and bought three elephants that had been rented out um, for different like tourism activities and they brought them to this land to live and interact with tourists to pay for the upkeep of the sanctuary um, and you can be totally honest with me about what you think about whether this like how ethical this particular sanctuary was um, so we were brought out into the jungle we had to hike in we fed them bananas um, we were allowed maximum 30 minutes of interaction with them and then we left and we went back later in the day to see them like walking through the river and then we were allowed to go into the river and wash them and mm. in retrospect afterwards I did a lot of research into it and basically the conclusion I came to was in most cases like there shouldn't be any interaction with the elephant it's okay to look and see them but in an ideal world we wouldn't be interacting with them at all yeah uh, I think you kind of really summed it up well actually um so it's first of all it's um anyone can call themselves a sanctuary um, for starters especially in Thailand the label kind of meat doesn't mean anything and I think that you know if you are someone who's ethically conscious and who's, who's aware of your environment and you've heard a bit about animal um you know, suffering and, the, and what elephants go through in the industry, uh, you might want to seek an experience that is much more naturalistic and, and friendly to the elephants. And so, you know, the experience you describe actually um, 
Uh, there are a lot of kind of positive things about it. I think the fact that elephants are free to roam around this jungle environment is wonderful. Um, it's so they're such social animals. It's so important that they have room to roam. They're able to socialize with each other. I think kind of the issue comes about, and this is something that comes up over and over um, when people are seeking ethical experiences, is even though those elephants are, of course, in a uh, it sounds like a much better situation than they were before. Um, the, the reality is that that up close interaction can only take place because they've already been trained. And as long as there's still tourist demand for those pets and selfies and bathing, um, there's still going to be demand for, for trained elephants, um, if that makes sense. So it's, it's tough. And I think there's no kind of black and white answer and, and there's clearly a massive spectrum. Um, but sort of the ideal goal, if you're looking to, to be able to to have an experience with elephants and not, you know, think that you might be contributing to exploiting them um, would be to seek experiences where it's observation only. So where you, it doesn't rely on that interaction because that means that elephant would not have to be trained for that experience to be possible, um, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on was you talk a little bit in your article about how non-humans portray um pain and discomfort and stress differently and I think you were suggesting that this is one reason why people find it difficult to assess whether it's a, an ethical interaction if you want to call it that because it's really hard to for us to tell if an animal is in distress yeah absolutely so I mean um, with people if if you know you, we're upset or we're in pain um, or we're suffering we'll cry out and we'll use our voice and and you know, will wince. And these are identifiable markers that a human is suffering. Um, but with animals, they express pain and discomfort very differently. Uh, often they won't do anything at all. Many elephant or many animals um, are unable to produce tears. Uh, many animals uh, don't even vocalize their pain um, at all. And so it's something that like if we're conditioned to look and identify pain um, based on what we see in each other. And with animals, it's a completely different situation. So um, it's really difficult for the average person if you're, you know, going somewhere for three hours while you're on vacation and you're seeing a bunch of elephants um, doing tricks on a show, it might be easy to think that, okay, those elephants um, are, seem to be having a good time. Uh, no one's crying out in pain, everything seems fine. Um, and so that's just, I think, yeah, I think that's a huge contributor to the fact that people may not realize that what they're seeing indicates abuse. So to shift gears a little bit, from personal observation, it seems like in the West there's been a shift towards deglorifying photo shoots with wild animals. Um, I frequently see in the travel forums that I follow that if someone shares an image of them like swimming with dolphins or something of that type of activity, there's a lot of negative response. So I'm wondering in your work, how have you seen cultural perceptions of animal tourism? How do they shift? How do they differ around the world? Um, I'm just wondering if you have insight on this. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, you raise a really good point about um, how, you know, in the West, many travelers are increasingly seeking more ethical experiences. And you'll see, I mean, I've seen them myself. Um, someone will post a photo on Instagram of themselves on an elephant's back and you'll see in the comments people saying this is animal abuse um, which is it, it's it shows that people really are becoming increasingly aware of these issues um, and I think that's what may be contributing to the rise in popularity of experiences like bathing elephants because people are kind of trying to do the right thing and so they think that avoiding riding um, but seeking bathing is maybe a little more ethical uh, and, you know, one note on bathing is that what people don't realize is that sometimes these animals are encountering, you know, five or six different tour groups in one day and maybe having baths over and over. And again, it just comes back to that training um, that that interaction requires. And so I think that that even though I mean, I think, you know, in terms of why this has become increasingly um, a thing that many people are aware of, uh, I think it, it's come down to uh, sheer exposure, um, education through the media, um, these stories being told over and over in different uh, mediums, uh, people using social media to educate their friends and family. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there is, and it's so difficult to say culturally um, why that is. Um, I think 
you know, it's something that I would probably leave to a, a cultural anthropologist to kind of really dive in on. But, um, you know, the, the reality is that at most of these elephant camps that I went to, I would speak to the owners and the vast majority of them would say, you know, most of our visitors are from China. And um, this, it's, it's just a fact. Um, there's the vast majority of these visitors are coming um you know, through Chinese tour groups, um, et cetera. And so in terms of why that is, I'm not sure. I think that, you know, for one, uh, China doesn't have any national animal welfare laws, whereas in the United States and in many countries, um, many other countries, including Western Europe, uh, there are many kind of animal welfare laws in place. So I think that, um, you know, that may indicate a differing attitude towards animals um, just generally uh, from a pure policy level in these countries. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's just, I think really hard to say, uh, um, I think it ultimately may come down to the sheer exposure that individuals have to information about what's going on. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah. So we want to dive a little bit more into social media in your writing. You've asserted that animal tourism succeeds partly because tourists often don't consider the possibility that they're helping to hurt animals. So the herd is actively disguised for this reason, but another part of the problem is social media. Social media has influence, which means that the image of a traveler with an animal that is posted is perceived as endorsements, and these endorsements often evolve into trends. Um, So for example, when images of travelers swimming with pigs in the Bahamas became frequent on Instagram, the activity exploded in popularity. So now there is a local concern for the well-being of the pigs because they've been overfed and misfed and some of them are being found dead. Um, So this was an interesting example of a social media trend that quickly evolved into a problem. Um, Based based on your experiences around the world, what have you observed in how social media has directly impacted wildlife tourism? And if you have like specific examples, that would be great. Yeah. um, So kind of like I touched on before, it it really is kind of this this viral advertising for these experiences. Um, It puts experiences like swimming with pigs in the Bahamas or riding elephants or snuggling tiger cubs. um, And the list kind of goes on and on and on. Um, right in front of your face, uh, whether it's coming from your family or friends, uh, or whether it's coming from a celebrity you really love or an influencer that you really admire. Uh, so just the sheer exposure that people have to these activities um, has increased. Uh, there was one study that between, I believe, uh, 2015 and 2017, uh, selfies with wild animals on the platform had increased almost 300%. Uh, so it just shows that, I mean, these things are increasingly present on social media. Um, And so that sort of drive to not only consume things on social media um, from other people's travels, but to kind of share your own, thereby contributing to sort of the the influx of these images everywhere you go, I do think is a factor in really sort of perpetuating social media's role in all this. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people are driven by the endorphins that you get when you post an image and it gets a lot of attention and people know that images of animals will do that. And that's been proven by the travel industry on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I I met with a couple of influencers who were actually, um, one one of them was in Thailand and she was actually having this elephant experience uh, at a luxury hotel. And then she was sharing it to her Instagram. She shared several images. Um, and, you know, she was very sort of, she was aware of the issues. She was very ethically uh, minded and she didn't want to uh, showcase anything that people might perceive as advertising or endorsing um, problematic elephant encounters. Uh, but sort of the, the reality is that you can't control how people on social media are going to perceive what you're putting out there. So, you know, she posted a photo of herself petting an elephant and standing next to that elephant. Um, But what, you know, viewers might see is that, oh, you know, this is an elephant encounter that I want to have too. And then sort of like I touched on before, you might do a Google search for how to have an elephant experience in Thailand, and you might end up at a facility where the elephants aren't treated too well. And then ultimately, you're just perpetuating the industry. And this whole industry, I think this is such an important sort of thing to keep in mind. It's all so driven by consumers. 
everything is driven by money in this industry. Everything is driven by consumer demand. And so these experiences only exist in the first place because people want them and are people and are willing to pay for them. So ultimately what the industry is going to look like and if, if it is going to change is because uh, people are demanding these experiences. Mm-hmm. I like that you brought up that it's consumer driven because this was something I actually wanted to bring up with you. So I researched that luxury hotel that you t- touch on in your article. Um, the first thing I did was search it on Instagram and I scrolled back far enough to find that there were influencers sharing images of them riding the elephants. And I found this so interesting because in the more recent images, it looks like people aren't riding them anymore, but clearly this hotel has noticed that, okay, we can't sell this experience anymore. It's not working anymore. We have to shift more towards the ethical approach, which is, okay, you can stand next to the elephant, but you can't ride it. And this is, they've shaped their business to reflect what we're asking of them. And that was the impression I got by looking at like their history on social media. Yeah, I think that's that's great that you did that because I think like what you discovered is ultimately um, something that is impacting the whole industry. And it's this like evolution from maybe these kind of riding show focused experiences with elephants more towards these naturalistic um, experiences because people are increasingly demanding them. And so, A, I think that that's um, it's a positive thing because it shows that businesses are willing to change based on what people want and ultimately um and an evolution away from kind of the riding experience is um, going to be a better thing for the elephants because they won't have to be trained um, to give rides. But um, it also shows that uh, everything is so driven by consumer demand and so driven by the economy. So when you have so many people who still want to go and watch elephant shows and who still want to go get elephant rides, then there's still going to be and always going to be a market for that. And I actually, there was one place that um, we visited that was really interesting. So they are were a traditional elephant camp. They had two shows a day um, with elephants performing tricks. They gave rides. The rest of the time, the elephants were kept in very small stalls, which is pretty standard for camps. Uh, One of them was on a chain with actually spikes pressing into her flesh. Uh, We put her in our story. And so the experience there was, um, I'd say, pretty standard for the elephant industry in Thailand. But actually, when we were speaking to the managers, uh, they told us that they'd actually opened a new facility uh, next door, geared more towards those kind of Western travelers who were seeking a more ethical experience. And so we actually went to visit that new property. It was newly opened. And there um you can't ride an elephant you can only kind of observe them um in a field you can kind of make treats for them and and uh, go into this elephant culture museum there are all these kind of different experiences that on its face would seem really ethical and like it's like headed in the right direction but what people don't realize is that the same elephants who perform in the shows are actually brought over for the day to this uh other experience anytime they get a booking so uh a visitor who might think that they're paying for this really ethical, um, naturalistic experience at this camp that kind of seems like a sanctuary, probably have no idea that the day before that young elephant that they're enjoying watching in the field was, you know, throwing darts in the show next door. Um, So this is just an example of, on one hand, it shows that that business is recognizing that there is a movement away from the, the kind of riding experiences. But ultimately what it is is a little bit deceptive to the consumer because they don't realize that it's all sort of from the same pot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to discuss with you some of my own experiences encountering wild animals while traveling because I've had a few. Um, most of them were involuntary, but I'm just curious what insights you might have on them. Um, so I'll just get into it then. (laughs) I get nervous doing this because like some of it is a shameful thing. I feel, I don't know. Don't be nervous. Like this whole thing, (laughs) like you should, people should never be shamed. I will say, first of all, I swam with manta rays on my honeymoon eight years ago. Yeah. And I have a photo of myself like as a little kid on the back of an elephant getting an elephant ride. So I, um, I think that that's sort of the, the example or that's like, 
it just shows that we all have sort of made these mistakes without realizing it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. And it's part of the learning experience too, because I must say like, it took me going to visit an elephant sanctuary to really start to think about, okay, was this okay? What I did. Yeah, yeah, so a couple years ago, I was in Marrakesh. Uh, The main square there is filled with locals who are trying to capitalize on tourist dollars. The way that they do this is by bringing in monkeys and snakes and they just stand there with them and they do like snake charming and the monkeys do tricks. But when you're walking through, they'll very aggressively put these animals on you. So they're trying to get you to take the animals so that you'll pay them for the photo or like it's very involuntary and very forceful, mm-hmm. but um, it clearly works. And while I was walking through many of the locals were shoving these snakes and the monkeys into my face and trying to have me take them and I was super uncomfortably uncomfortable because I was very afraid of the animals and like frankly did not want anything to do with them and I remember afterwards feeling like distinct discomfort because I realized that there was like an economic element to this The animal, like in this case, was likely that person's livelihood. They needed tourists to participate and take these animals because they need to feed their own families. Um, So it really pointed out to me that this is a way that people in lower income countries make money and like care for their families. So the focus of feeding the family was more so their concern than the welfare of the animal is what I'm getting at. I don't know if I explained that well, but that was like a realization I had. And I think that works into this industry in a lot of ways, because while the handlers must have, they must be cognizant to some degree that these animals aren't happy, but there's other factors in place that make it more important that they do this and take care of other humans than care for the well-being of the animal. And I was just wondering if you had any insight on that idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that's obviously all true. And it, 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 it really, I kind of think indicates why this is such a complex situation um, because there are no kind of easy answers to this. Uh, the reality is that so many people all over the world uh, depend on tourism to, to make a living um, and wildlife tourism, while there are no sort of, um, actually hard numbers on a, on how valuable it is and how how big of an industry it is it is massive uh we know just from knowing uh that you know certain animal experiences are very lucrative um in all over the world i think that it, it comes down to the fact that this is only a livelihood and they're only people are only able to make money for instance offer kind of off shoving a monkey in your face to get um to give you an opportunity for a selfie because people are willing, are willing to pay for it. So right, this right. is a market that has come up and has grown and is lucrative because of the traveler. So um, it boils so down I, to it still being consumer driven. Yeah, it's ultimately just all consumer driven. And so the tourism industry is never going to go away. It's only growing. The wildlife tourism industry is likely never going to go away. And you know, I think elephants actually are a great example because there are 3,800 elephants in captivity in Thailand. And uh, the reality is that elephants who are in captivity have to stay in captivity. They can't just be released to the wild. It doesn't work like that. Uh, So there's always going to be some form of of elephant tourism because tourism is uh, a way to pay uh, to eat keep these elephants alive. It's a way to pay uh, in order to feed your family. Um, But kind of like how I think that it comes down to how that tourism is going to look. So if tourists increasingly say, okay, we love animals and we love elephants and we still want to see them, but we no longer want to ride them or bathe them or touch them because we know that that involves training and we know that's not good for the animal. And they say, but we want to have these observational safari-like experiences. Then people are still able to make money from this tourism, but the experience itself will possibly look different. Right. So I think that it, 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 the the kind of main takeaway, and this is kind of what I learned um, through reporting and talking to many many people who kind of uh, make a living through providing these opportunities for visitors. Um, is that they ultimately just follow what the people are asking for and what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and the money will kind of always be there. And I think one actually good example of uh, how local people um, depend on this kind of captive wildlife tourism is um, the town I went to in the Amazon, actually, that I mentioned before, where 
Um, it was this tiny little community on the Amazon River. Um, and uh, people there were actually pulling wild animals like sloths and caimans and monkeys and anacondas out of the jungle and keeping them in these uh, very small cages. And then every day, um, 150 tourists were actually coming over by boat um, from a larger town down the river. And uh, the locals there were able to make a living through tips from these that these tourists would pay when they posed with these animals and held them. So um, it was very lucrative, uh, but ultimately what happened was that the, the animals were dying routinely because they weren't well cared for. And last December, the Peruvian um, authorities actually went and they rescued 22 animals from this town. And they said to the people there, they said, you have to stop doing this um, or we're going to issue fines and you potentially might go to jail because it was illegal. And they actually did stop. And a local uh, uh, nonprofit started working with this community to help them establish new animal-free forms of uh, tourism so that they could still attract visitors and still make money, but not exploit animals in the process. But the reality is that the tourists are no longer coming because um, the animals aren't there and the big tour companies are actually bringing them down the river to another spot where they can oh, handle animals. Yeah. So it's just an example of like this town's really sort of trying to do the right thing. But ultimately, the market and the consumer market in that area is not yet ready for it. People are still seeking these animal experiences. Just know that, I mean, travelers are really kind of have all the power um, in changing the market at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other experience I wanted to bring up was um, uh, a small town in in India, and it was a town that a lot of people traveled to as pilgrims. So it's very holy, and there were a lot of um, temples that you could visit there. And one temple was very famous because it had an elephant that would give blessings if you mm -hmm. gave the elephant money. Um, and my partner and I had a long debate about it, about whether we were going to go and see if this elephant really existed, because it wasn't like the most touristy town. It was mostly like Indian tourists. And so we weren't actually sure that this elephant that people were talking about by name existed. Um, so we wandered to the temple and we wandered in and of course we found her and she was doing exactly what locals had told us she would be doing. She was giving blessings to big crowds of tourists um, and it was really sad. And But as a Westerner watching the scene in a town that was like mostly local Indians and Indian tourists, there was a bit of me that felt like it was it came from a p place of privilege for me to judge that as wrong because looking in it was like okay this is part of their culture in their eyes like obviously in India animals don't have the same there are no animal rights and like you said like in Asia it's quite shocking already when you arrive in Asia and you see like the state of animals in general is very mm -hmm. different because like here at home in Canada like we treat our animals very well by comparison I felt like kind of conflicted about it because I didn't know if it was right for me to express because locals were trying to get us to partake and we were like, no, 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 we don't want to be part of this. Uh -huh. And it was this weird conflict because in their eyes, like there was nothing wrong with what was happening. This elephant is holy. And I felt uncomfortable because I was like, it, it seems like a place of privilege because I come from a country where we can have dogs as pets and like I can afford to take my cats to the vet. So I was just wondering if you think like there is a position of privilege involved in the way that we think about animal tourism and issues around the world in terms of animal treatment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. I think you raise a really um, kind of you bring up a really important point, which is that, you know, maybe as a foreigner in a foreign country, you felt uncomfortable with what you were seeing, but you witnessed um, this was in India and many uh Indians were participating in these activities, you may wonder, okay, well, is it, am I right to judge what's happening because I'm concerned for the animal? Um, I think it's tough. I think there's no um, correct answers to that. Um, I think that, you know, we wrote this story not from a Western perspective, although we were Westerners writing it, but like, but I mean that our intention in writing this story um, wasn't to judge from an American or Canadian perspective. It was to simply illuminate what was going on. And so then ultimately is left up to the reader to decide, okay, 
is this something that I agree? Is this something that I think is blanket wrong and should be stopped? Is it something that I think in certain circumstances it's okay? Um, and I think that ultimately comes up to the individual. Um, I the reality is that you know that elephant you saw in in the temple in India. Um, in order to have those interactions, of course, was trained likely in a painful and fear-based way. Um, and so is the fact that it is a kind of culturally significant activity to many of the people participating in it, in it is that kind of, does it justify the way that elephant was trained to participate in it? And I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that question. I think that, that that's something that's very personal. Um, you know, that if it seems to be culturally significant, are you in a position to judge? And I don't know. I mean, I think that that's something that I just can't answer because I think ultimately it's it's pretty personal. Yeah, well, thank you for your insight. And I really appreciated that in reading your piece, which we're definitely going to link in the show notes. Um, it really provided the big picture and the tone was very neutral. And I liked the way you described your interactions with the people who were operating, especially like the elephant camps. Yeah. It was truly just to extract information and to learn like what factors were involved in the operation. Right. Like entirely. Um, And this is because I think this is such an emotionally charged issue that many people have very, very strong opinions about. Um, But kind of like our role as journalists in spending almost two years kind of reporting on this was to simply provide the information um, and to dig deep and to be able to kind of go behind the scenes and get that information that the average reader couldn't get for themselves just, you know, being on vacation for a very short amount of time. So I think that, like, that was really important to me in writing this story, that I uh, remain non-judgmental, that I remain neutral, and that I simply presented, um, you know, what we were kind of uncovering and seeing so that the reader could ultimately sort of read it and be like, and figure out where they stand and what their position is. Mm-hmm. So to close up, I wanted to ask if, given all your experience, what tips you might have for travelers who are interested in having these experiences? Like for you, is it a hard no? Say like, and I talk about elephants a lot, but it's because it seems to be the most popular activity that I've noticed amongst travelers like everyone who goes to Asia wants to have this experience but is there any way to have this experience in a more ethical way or from your perspective is it just don't participate at all or maybe go to a viewing experience what is your stance or would you say for someone who who really wants to avoid participating yeah I think that um it you know, so wildlife tourism as a concept, the idea of, of seeing wild animals while traveling um, or even while not traveling um, is not a negative thing by any means. It's a pretty neutral kind of conceit. Um, you know, there are very ethical safaris that take place um, all over the world where you can, you know, get on a Jeep and go drive through a national park and not disrupt um, any of the animals and sort of just use your binoculars and observe from afar what's going on. And so I think that this, the kind of safari model is actually, you know, of course, when done right, I think is a great example of um, ethically geared wildlife tourism. And I think why that is, if we break it down, is because you're not having a kind of canned artificial interaction experience. An animal doesn't have to be trained for you to enjoy it. Or sorry, you're able to watch animals in the wild engaging in, in natural behaviors. Um, and of course, you know, not every ethical experience necessarily even takes place in the wild. There are many legitimate animal sanctuaries um, around the world that care for animals that simply cannot live in the wild for various reasons. Um, there are several legitimate elephant sanctuaries where you can go and you can watch elephants uh, roaming around Um, in kind of a forest where they're able to interact with each other, but uh, you're not able to get get close to them. And I think that that's sort of the distinction to look for. If this is something that you really want to be able to see animals while traveling, which I totally understand, I want to as well, but you don't want to, you don't want to even consider Um, the fact that you might be contributing to any sort of exploitation, um, I'd advise you to kind of seek those observational experiences, Um, whether it's in the wild or whether it is in a captive environment, 
but the animals have room to roam, they're able to kind of do their thing, and there isn't that sort of up-close interaction. So, and I think it, it kind of finding these places can be a challenge um, because like I said before, anywhere can kind of, any place can call themselves a sanctuary if they want to. So um, looking for labels uh, like the word sanctuary or you know gives back to conservation, these are things that a lot of um, facilities like to say, but you really want to dig deeper and you want to look at the actual experiences they offer. Um, if they offer interaction, that might be a red flag. If they um, pride themselves on saying we offer no interaction, um, that could potentially be a, be a good sign. Um, I'd encourage people to read reviews of any place that you're considering visiting and especially reading the one and two star reviews um, is can be really helpful because often that's where visitors will detail animal welfare concerns if they've been somewhere and they just haven't liked what they've seen. So I'd read those negative reviews it's completely understandable that people want to see animals while they're traveling. Uh, when you go to Thailand, you want to see tigers and elephants because those are the native Thai animals. Um, but it's yeah important to kind of look for ways that you can see them without kind of contributing to, to that exploitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I don't know if you'd know offhand, but do you have any recommendations for specific organizations that people can visit? Yeah, so to learn more um, about uh, ethical wildlife tourism in general, um, an organization called World Animal Protection has done extensive work on this issue. Uh, they have uh, been a source for National Geographic on many of our stories. Um, I'd recommend checking out their guidance for how to see an animal ethically. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's a great start. Um, I'd also look up, uh, it's called the Five Freedoms, and these are guidelines for kind of animal welfare around the world. Um, and a couple of them are, you know, uh, freedom to roam, freedom from pain and distress, uh, freedom, or sorry, access to food and water. Um, and I'm forgetting all five right now, but I'd Google these things and just familiarize yourself with what the five freedoms are so that you can kind of apply these rules to any um, facility you may be considering visiting. And if it seems to violate kind of one of the five freedoms, maybe it's not, um, it might not be such a good option for you. We'll link that in the show notes as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been like very enlightening. I feel like I've learned a lot of information. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's yeah, I think ultimately the takeaway is that um, travelers have so much power to, to kind of change this industry and, uh, you know, for the better. And I think social media, uh, we talked about it a lot about kind of the negative um, impact it can have, but it also can be harnessed as a tool uh, for social good. And I think it is already in many ways. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Great. Thanks uh, for having me, Erin. I appreciate it. All right, Alpaca Pals. If you want to read the article we've been talking about, you can find it on the National Geographic website. It's called Suffering Unseen. And to find it, your best bet is to just search Natasha's name, which is Natasha Daly, D-A-L-Y. You can also find her on Instagram at at Natasha L. Daly. This podcast is produced by Katie Lohr and written and hosted by me, Erin Hines. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Alpaca My Bags Pod. Join our Facebook group, which is called Alpaca Your Bags, or email us at hello at alpacamybags.ca. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know by reviewing the podcast, and remember to subscribe while you're at it. Tune in every other Wednesday for more episodes, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags soon. Until next time.